The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in the markets. Lauren Rublin is taking a much-deserved break, and I'm thrilled to welcome Barron's senior reporter, Al Root, as we talk about the market rebound, the Fed, and, of course, what's happening in the world of electric vehicles. Still Al, welcome. Hi, we lost you for a second there, Ben. It's good to be uh, back. You lost me. That's not good. Um, that's too early to be having technical problems. You should have those in the middle of the call. Um, but, Al, what I wanted to ask you, let's start off by talking about this market. Uh, yep. August has been pretty tough. Uh, the Nasdaq's down, I think, 5.3%. The S&P has dropped 4%. And through Friday, was on pace to be the first month without back-to-back updates since 2002. Um, though it's battling to get that update today, which would make two days in a row. Um, so what I want to know is, why has August been so tough? Uh, ben? I'm back, Ben. Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I don't know who's having the problems here. Is it me or is it you? I don't know. It could have been me. Who knows? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on. And if uh, anyone out there can uh, tell us, um, that would be helpful. Um, so Al, well, I didn't hear a word of what you said, but yeah, let's try this again. What's going on in August? Yeah, if we're both, uh, if me and you were just screaming into the void, that just is basically any day for me. Yeah, um, well, what's going on? I can August? hear you now, so this is good. Yeah, I mean August, lousy month, right? Um, I, I do, you know, I it's kind of when you get those statistics like no back-to-back updates, you almost start rooting that if you're going to have a lousy month, you may as well have some interesting factoid. So I, I hope we don't get back-to-back updates for the rest of the the month. Remember September? The September arrives on Friday. Very almost unbelievable. Yeah, that would be uh, great if uh, it happens. There's nothing better than having a good superlative to throw around, even though I think ultimately it's it's probably fairly meaningless. Though I would point out that even at it's been 19 day trading days, the last uh, the only uh, longer streak uh, was I think 28 days back in March of 2020. So even if we don't get that monthly record going back to 2002, it's still been almost you know it's about three years since uh, we've had this kind of uh, weakness uh, or this kind of I guess, uh, aimlessness in the market, this inability to get an update. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the 
the August narrative is 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 two or three things. You know, ju- up until July, things were great, and you know the market. I think the market, uh, you know, uh, poetically peaked on the 31st. I think we all, you know, uh, uh, all the market participants started to say, you know what, this soft landing is here. Uh, we're not going to have a recession. If we do, we'll have a really shallow recession. Business is pretty good. Inflation's coming down. Unemployment is still stable. The consumer's resilient. And so all of that good news, we felt great. And then we all went on vacation and we started to feel a little bit better. So, you know, the market, or a little bit worse, you know, the market was due maybe for a correction. So that's, yeah. that's sort of my narrative. And, you know, in August, we're, we, you do get summer volumes, right? We do, we do all leave. Lauren, Lauren is off. That's why you get me for two weeks in a row. Take that or leave it. Um, and, and, you know, we're about uh, 70% of peak volume from July. We're about 85% of average volume. You know, when you get less than average volume, you know, it, it, there's, you know, obviously the market's still very large, but that can impact price to a certain degree. Um, so you would really look to September to see uh, how we all feel about the market and how we feel about uh, Jerome Powell and all the recent things that we've learned in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And, and what about September? I mean, because September has this reputation for being even worse than August. Um and that has to be kind of frightening because September is starting well on on Friday. Yeah, I mean September last twenty years September has been the last worst month uh, for the S and P five hundred, which is you know down about half a percent on average. That's twenty years, um, and just as important as that average is the number of times it goes up or down. Like it's it's only uh, up eleven out of twenty, uh, and so from a from a monthly seasonality perspective, September is not very good. So it's yeah, kind of I mean, like we all get back from vacation and then we all feel a little more cautious. And, and just put that number in perspective. I mean, the the market generally goes up. So even having a month where it's up a little more than 50% of the time, that's that's not very good um, in, in terms of how things are. And I know we all remember the bad things that happened in September, uh, like the, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy uh, was a September event. And those kind of things get yep. uh, pretty crazy. Um so we, we had uh, the Jackson Hole speech on Friday. Powell reinforced the importance of the incoming data again um, when determining whether we're to get more rate hikes. And we get two big data points this week. Uh, we get the PC deflator. That's the Fed's favored inflation metric. We're going to get that on Thursday. And yep. then we get payrolls on Friday. How important are they for this market? Uh, pretty important, I think. Right? I, I think that. So, if we if we extend that narrative, we were feeling good about soft landing, and the end of the fate rate rate height cycle uh, just over the horizon. Um, and then this, you know, we'll get the PCE uh, Thursday. That's personal consumption, personal consumer, personal consumption expenditures, which uh, roughly is speaking is personal consumption expenditures, and it's supposed to rise two point four four point two percent year over year. So it's about Point point and a half above. And that's uh, the core inflation. number, right? Yeah, that's the core number. So that's okay. everything, or that's the core, right? You know, yeah. core. We yeah. like to exclude everything that we actually do with our lives, like eat and drive, but that's the core number. Um, and if above four percent is, you know, is a number that Powell will focus on and use to justify more rate increases. You know, you were talking, Ben. I, I'm going to throw this back your way. Like you were talking um, earlier today about, you know, sort of those big messages from the Jackson Hole speech and what the market may or may not have missed. It was a little more hawkish than, you know, uh, the soft landing kind of scenario uh, would imply. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, what maybe we in the media missed is that uh, it, what stuck out to me is when he's talked about the uh, the economy and the job market. And in both cases, he was saying with the economy in particular, he was saying, look, this pickup in growth, he basically said it's not a good thing. And it just left me wondering whether um, we're going to have to see a recession before uh, Powell is feeling comfortable with uh, where, where the economy is going, where inflation is going. Um, because, you know, we, we, we are getting this uh, stronger economy. I can't remember exactly where the Atlanta Fed uh, uh, estimate is right now, and it probably won't be as high as, as uh, the actual number won't be as high as it is now, but it's still, that's pointing to 5.9% real GDP growth in the third quarter. Um, and the, the Fed's not going to like that. It means that you're, if we get a number close to that, the Fed's going to not like that. And that's going to mean more rate hikes. It's going to mean the uh, rate hikes, uh, rates staying higher for longer. And none of that can be good um, in the long term. The longer these, uh, the longer or the higher rates go, um, it's, it's just going to end up slowing things down more uh, when the recession inevitably comes. Yeah. Yeah, and then from a from a jobs perspective and, and the strength of that economy, we get payrolls and unemployment on Friday. You know, more job gains. 175,000 is the bogey. Uh, 187,000 jobs from uh, what month are we in? July. So that was last month. And so for for August, they're expecting 175. Unemployment, three and a half percent. That's pretty low. That's all those numbers are are why uh, Mr. Powell still sounds relatively hawkish. Yeah, no, it's it's very true, and it's it's those numbers. I mean, how how they come in? If they come in uh, hotter than expected, um, I think it uh, it could mean that this rally that uh, the market is trying to stage uh, come back for a little bit from uh, the August sell-off uh, could be uh, in for a problematic turn. Um, it so, always cracks me up when good news is bad news and bad news is good news. We want we want weak data this week. We want lousy news. Yeah, because not too lousy, because then we'll start talking about recessions again, right? Exactly. Just lousy enough. Just lousy enough. Um, yeah, it's it's the kind of day you get home and you can say, eh, it was an eh kind of day. Not 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 good, not bad, just eh. All right. So yeah. one of the things I look at this market is that, you know, we had tech lead us higher. And then the hope was either that tech would keep going or you'd get this handoff from tech to other parts of the market. But you look at what's happening in August, everything is pretty much down. You get uh, discretionary that's down 4.7. You get utilities, that's down 4.7. Materials down 4.6. Staples are down four. Banks are down more than seven. Um, it seems like everything, um, no matter what kind of investor you are, if you were going for offense or defense, or if you were playing the winners or trying to bet on the losers, none of that has worked for you. Um, what does this mean? You know, it's a really good question. And I mean, I will certainly uh, endeavor to answer, uh, but you know, part of the answer is I'm not really sure what it means. I mean, it's a broad sell-off, right? You know, one of the themes of this year, I think, is sort of this worry about rates, slow growth, shallow recession kind of uh, economic backdrop is nothing has sort of worked except big tech, right? And, you know, if you look at the equal weight S&P 500, you can look up the RSP, which is the Invesco equal weight S&P up about 5% year-to-date. That's 10 points behind uh, the S&P, which is market cap weighted. So that just goes to show that the Apples and, and Googles, Microsofts, and NVIDIAs of the world are, are outperforming by a lot. 
and it and, and when everything else sells off when when everything sells off it's sort of like i feel like everybody has given up and basically said that the only thing i can really safely own is the big seven or big eight tech stocks and that's you know it, we always like to joke in terms of career risk for professional money managers nobody gets fired for being overweight apple um, you know, with, with the uptick in uncertainty, <clears throat> everything goes down, including big tech. But, you know, relatively speaking, I think that sort of idea of we sell everything and we go into the big tech because it's the only thing thematically that's working and I feel good about and safe with, uh, I think sort of that's what's going on, even though it's not, it doesn't fit that narrative perfectly. But that's that's sort of how I feel like people are thinking about the market these days. It's tech and everything else. Yeah, and everything else uh, doesn't seem to be doing so great. But we're going to get, uh, you know, earnings season's basically over, but we're going to get a few tech stocks this week. Um, the two that really stand out to me are Salesforce and Broadcom. Um, and one analyst I was reading was said that uh, Salesforce, uh, he, he, he pitched it as an AI stock. Um, what are you expecting from Salesforce? Uh, well, Salesforce, right? So what's the setup? It's up. Uh, coming into Monday, I'm not sure what it's doing today, but coming into Monday, up 28% over the past six months. Trades for about 24 times, calendar 24. So a little bit higher than the S&P. So growth stock, supposed to do a $1.90 versus a $1.19 a year ago. So it's growing. So everything seems fine. Sales are growing. The one thing I'd point out about that, 190, that's adjusted. They're a big stock options user, but you know, we'll, we'll let, leave that debate for another day. So you know, what do you need from, and they guide, right? So, so they guide, so the current guidance is for um, $7.32 at the midpoint. So with growth stocks and stocks that are performing, we need beats and we need raises. So we need something above 190 and we need uh, guidance uh, to go up, hopefully more than the beat. And then, you know, the stock can maintain its momentum. It's funny you say about AI, right? Everything's an AI stock. I, oh, it was it was one of our colleagues that was talking about like it was General Mills or Campbell Soup is like an AI stock. They're going to use AI to, to you know, do better recipes. Everything can't be an AI stock. I think with the with the idea of Salesforce, it's really like a like um, you know those tools become more efficient. You know, HR, sales leads, all that sort of stuff that Salesforce does. You can be more efficient with AI. So maybe it's more of an AI stock than like a, a consumer staple, but it's probably less of an AI stock than like NVIDIA. So uh, yeah. you're going to have to say that, smart about that. I think there's probably an argument to be made that NVIDIA is really the only AI stock right now. Um, it, it's the one that's really uh, showing the uh, the sales are coming in and the, the growth is there uh, and everything else seems to be a lot more uh, uh, theoretical at this point. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Salesforce could do. They've been another one that also was trying to right the ship a little bit by cutting costs and and, and whatnot. And we'll see if the you know that continues. If the market will want to reward cutting costs versus actual growth. It'll be interesting to see. So we're also going to get Broadcom, um, Broadcom's chip stock, and uh, what's that going to tell us? So I think that so it's funny, right? Um... Eric and Tay, Tay Kim, of course, know this much better than I do. I would encourage everyone to read Tay's coverage of all the chip stocks now. But broadly speaking, um, you know, I think this one talks tells us about uh, a demand for uh, chips and electronics, and and then also, you know, how we are uh, coming out of COVID and the chip shortage type stuff. So, you know, this one uh, is supposed to do ten dollars and forty three cents a share. That's up year over year. Uh, sales 8.7 billion versus 8.1 billion. 
Um, again, up year over year. So I think we want to see things, you know, so what do I want to see as a non, uh, non super focused tech guy, more focused on industrials and things like that and cars. I want to see, you know, uh, good demand. I want to see uh, free production. I want to see, um, you know, uh, lower lead times. Uh, it's funny, lower lead times might not be great for that stock, but uh, that would probably be good for all of my stuff. So that's the sort of thing I'm looking for out of Broadcom. All right, that sounds great. So let's let's turn now to a sector I know is near and dear to your heart, um, electric vehicles. So we have yep. two Chinese EV makers are reporting this week, NIO and BYD. Um, so first, tell me about NIO. What's going on there? So, yep, we have hit the contractual obligation. We get to talk about uh, electric vehicles when I'm around. So uh, NIO, uh, well, let's, let's do the reverse order. BYD actually reported today. It's funny okay. because they are, of course, overseas. Their press release is dated August uh, 29th. It's 28th, but it's the 29th over there. Um, so they're out. Uh, their sales rose. Um, oh, they're, they're, they basically came in in line. So 19 billion in sales, up about 50% year over year. First, um, you know, they, they their uh, their car sales grew um, like uh, 90% year over year in the first half. Uh, it, their their growth story is really remarkable between them and Tesla. So Tesla is the largest maker of electric vehicles in the world. The uh, the largest maker of battery electric vehicles in China is BYD. So these are these are the number one and two players. They're both profitable. Tesla is more profitable still, um, but they're profitable and they're really separating themselves from the field. They're growing faster than the overall market. BYD and Tesla are both growing faster than the Chinese market, uh, and Tesla is growing faster than the global market in terms of deliveries. So one of the things you're seeing is everybody's getting into EVs and everybody thinks EVs are the future. I certainly do. We could talk about that at any level, but uh the the bigger getting bigger and I, I think it speaks to the benefits of scale and the benefits of doing it for a while um you know and, people and he, prefer those cars right and, and you've, you've been talking that um i know it just in the office with me just about the need for other ev makers to have a hit on their hands and they really haven't been able to do it they, they build these cars that you know they're trying to push the volumes on but nobody really they haven't found the one that people really want to buy yet yeah, I mean, so we'll get to Neon in a second, but that idea of a hit, right? It's something that you sell tens of thousands a month, right? So Rivian almost maybe has a hit with that R1S. You know, Ford was on the verge of maybe a hit with its Lightning, but then they had production problems and battery problems, and they never got to that sort of 10,000, you know, mythical six-figure-a-month type sales number. Um, the only other one that sort of has a hit is like Li Auto in China, uh, which which is actually basically the third profitable EV maker globally. So you need you need volumes and you need so when people launch these very fancy hundred thousand dollar cars, we should all ignore it because which is great. It's great to have cool cars, but the market for hundred thousand dollar cars is is very very small globally, right? So it, it it's not going to achieve that volume. So we should all watch for sort of a uh, a Model Three slash Model Y type hit like Tesla sells, you know, fifty. 30, uh, you know, between 10 and 50,000 units of those a month, uh, depending on the market around the world. And that's sort of the scale you need to generate profits. Right. And, and Neo, BYD does that, right? Oh, BYD does that. So BYD in the first half of the year, uh, 1.2 million vehicles. Now they're split basically 50-50 plug-in hybrid battery electric. 
So mm-hmm. first six months of the year, we're talking 600,000 all-electric vehicles. That's 100,000 a month. And lo and behold, they, they're profitable and generate, you know, 14% gross profit margins. And, and you were saying about NEO? Well, NEO, so here's the thing, right? We had this theme of the bigger getting bigger. NEO sales are down year over year. And they're not profitable yet, right? So, uh, but, you know, so we're, we're in this period where, you know, this unmitigated or, or, you know, sort of unchallenged growth, everybody's growing. We're out of that phase of the EV transition. Now, the stock is up uh, like 16% over the past six months because in July, uh, volumes were very, very good. But we're, you know, what people are going to be looking for there is, you know, strong delivery guidance for the third quarter. Like we're talking between maybe 60, 70,000 units up year over year going back to growth. And that'll determine the, the rate of that stock, but, or how that stock performs. But just keep in mind that idea of, you know, we're talking about, you know, 50% year over year growth for, for BYD in the Chinese market. And you're talking about uh, year over year declines for NEO. Hmm. That doesn't sound uh, very good for the stock, at least going going forward. Um, a lot of the time, it's it's hard to make sense of what the stock market is looking at. Do are they seeing a pickup in things? Uh, but you can often make a narrative around it. The thing, that, one of the things that we've been watching, and we can't even figure out the narrative really, is what's going on with Vinfast, that uh, Vietnamese EV maker that went public via SPAC a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's now the second most valuable auto, uh, automaker in the world. Is that right, Al? Second most EV maker, second most valuable EV maker, behind Tesla. Third most uh, valuable automaker behind Tesla and Toyota. So, so So, what's going on there? And it, it, uh, uh, I know you have one word down on this on this page: uh, insanity. Uh, All right, explain. So the numbers are great. I love the numbers. Numbers are fun. So it's worth about 190 billion as of today. It's been up for six straight days. Um, and that, that move has generated $165 billion in stock market value. Somebody must be getting very rich off this. Probably not, right? The, the shares available for, one of the reasons this happens is the shares available for, for trading are less than 20 million. So it did this SPAC merger, which is how it became a publicly traded company. That happened a couple weeks back. The, the stock symbol became VFS, and off to the races the stock went. Only about 20, you know, probably less than 20 million of 2.3 billion shares outstanding are trading. So you're really talking about, you know, the stock market has made for non-insiders about a billion dollars of stock market value. And the stock has tr- turned over. Like the average holding period uh, is about a day and a half. We, you know, when I came into the room, there had been about 65 million shares of Infast traded over the last six days. Again, 17, 20 million shares outstanding, it's, it's turned over about four times. So that, that just goes to show you that traders are trading this thing like a meme stock. And, you know, maybe they were hoping to do a short squeeze or execute a short squeeze. S3 partners, our friends over at S3, uh, there is no short interest in this. It is completely dwindled away. This is just traders uh, trading amongst themselves. Uh, and one of the reasons this can happen is because there's not that much stock outstanding. But that said, who cares? Is it worth, so it's worth 25% of what Tesla is worth. It's worth twice as much as BYD. It's worth more than every US EV startup combined. It's the most valuable US, it's the most valuable EV startup ever. 
uh, it eclipsed uh, Rivian, which got up to about 150 billion mm -hmm. at one point shortly after its IPO. It's worth more than four General Motors and uh, Chrysler, Parents, Stellantis combined. Whatever number you want, uh, it, it it's very difficult to justify. Now it has capacity <laughs> to make about 300,000 cars, and uh, every other automaker we mentioned. I think, uh, no, we didn't mention, we, I mentioned Rivian. Every other automaker except Rivian has the capacity to make millions. In some cases, uh, you know, like uh, Toyota can make 10 million, and yet it's worth, uh, yet it's the third most valuable in the world. This, there are a few things that I am sure of. The stock will be lower eventually. And it's funny, like, I don't wish anything, I don't wish ill on VinFast. I hope that they have wonderful uh, future and get market share and employ many many people around the world, but this is this is nonsense. Yeah, I mean it, it reminds me of the uh, kind of the, the trading that went on during the So's Bandit days back in the uh, late 1990s, where it just you just went with the momentum and nothing else mattered um, with some of those stocks. Yeah, uh, and that seems to be the case right now with uh, with Vinfast. So uh, let's uh, you know we, we talked about one that's going up higher, um, perhaps for no good reason. Now let's look at the U.S. automakers. You know they they're having a tough time. They really can't find that hit uh, with the EV market, and now they face potential strikes. Is there a light mm -hmm. at the end of the tunnel? So the funny thing about strikes, so it's I find myself um, playing the devil's advocate with strikes, and I think some of the problems are you get these headlines. You know, Ford and GM lose five billion dollars a month month in a strike scenario. And it's kind of true. It's kind of not because you're sort of talking about difference between wholesale and retail sales volumes and, and all these sorts of things. And, you know, you tend to catch up um, once strikes resolve, you know, and I was told this by several analysts and then also people who put this in print, you basically buy the fear of a strike, right? So if the U.S. auto stocks go down because we're going to strike, you buy them and things tend to rebound after the strike is resolved or after a labor deal is is signed, sealed, and delivered. And then they go right back to where they were before all the strike fear um, happened. And if you think about the strike, this is just sort of labor matters. Labor deserves, labor deserves to come to the table, negotiate hard, get every cent they can. But, you know, this is just the way things get done, right? Like UPS, you know, it has its labor deal now. Uh, Spirit Aerosystems, that's a, a Boeing supplier. It has its labor deal done now. These are ones I've been following. Negotiations were hard. Wages are going up faster than expected. But everybody expects wages to go up faster than expected, right? Or faster than in the past is what I mean to say. Mm -hmm. um, inflation has averaged about 4% uh, over the past few years. Uh, you know, it, it peaked at about 9%, but it's averaged four, between 4 and 5% for the past few years. In the last labor negotiations, inflation was 2%. So you basically, that's the base case. You come back and you say to your your, your employers, listen, we got, we got to catch up. We've been losing out. And for the most part, that's what the outcome has been at places like UPS. That's what I would expect at at GM. And so right now, it's just, it's just a lot of drama. Uh, the president of the UAW has said that he's unhappy with the pace of negotiations. And he said things like the automakers are sort of unwilling to engage on core economic issues or, and are talking about other stuff right now. Uh, I like the line that deadlines drive deals. Uh, the contract expires in the middle of September. There could be a strike. 
you know, GM had about a month long strike in 2019, the last time we were doing this. And, you know, if you look at look, uh, a five-year chart of GM, you know, I sort of defy you to tell me where the strike started and ended. It's just not something that has long-term impact on the stock. Um, all right. So before we move on from EVs, we have two questions from listeners. Um, the first is from William. Uh, well, William wants to know about the availability of charging stations. Uh, are there going to be, are there enough of them or are we going to end up with long lines at the stations that could become a problem for Tesla at some point? So interesting question. Uh, this is now, uh, you know, public disclosure time. So I actually drive a Tesla Model 3 and maybe we could do something on that sometime. Uh, I have never, I've had to wait one time for a stall at a Tesla. Now, of course, so from a, from, from a, from an EV charging perspective, and if you look at a Tesla perspective, what does that mean? They've basically managed to increase their charging infrastructure at the rate, uh, of their sales to the point where nobody ever waits. Fine. That's fine. Um, with, uh, remember from a charging station perspective, Charging stations are going to be your most expensive option. You're going to pay much better rates uh, when you're paying residential uh, electricity rates, and you're not paying sort of a company that needs to make a profit on that uh, infrastructure that they put up. So, you know, the vast majority of EV charging is going to be done at home. Um, are lines going to become an issue? You know what is fascinating? We, you know, we have, there is a, there's a million ways to, to, to play with numbers and math. And, you know, you can make numbers dance and say what you want. It is not clear that charging infrastructure, like if we all had sort of, if every Exxon mobile station magically put in uh, EV plugs, right? And we were unlimited on EV plugs. It's not clear that infrastructure drives adoption. It looks more like to me that people buy the EVs and then the infrastructure gets put up and it all sort of works out to the point where nobody's really upset. So all I would say in conclusion is I don't expect lines. I expect people to sort of keep up. Um, and one of the reasons I think that, that the infrastructure comes after the EVs is EV charging companies don't want to lose money, right? Mm -hmm. you, you don't, you, you, you wait for, you know, to the point where you can have some usage of your system uh, before you put up the infrastructure. So, um, you know, I sort of expect it to work out okay and never forget two things. One is, you can charge at home and two, your expensive charging is the charging station stuff. Got it. All right. Let's move on to our next reader question. This is from Lee it says, Al, are you as bullish long-term on Tesla as Kathy would? Do you think Tesla is simply an AI company more than a car company? Oh goodness. No is my answer. But now I did not know this question was coming in. You should Google root barons, Kathy Wood because I, you get all her price targets and EBITDA estimates. Now she is the most bullish person on Tesla. It's, it's like a $2,400 or $2,500 price target in the next five years. So you could do sort of the Kager. It's a 10 X or in five years uh, for Kathy. She has hundreds of billions in earnings tied to robo taxis. Right. Um, and that's the idea that it's, it's an AI stock, you know, which was fun this weekend. Uh, Elon Musk posted a video on X of himself taking like a 40 minute self-driving Tesla ride uh, around Palo Alto. It's a fairly impressive video. We wrote it up. You can, you can check out the story. 
but it's that idea that the that the self-driving features are getting so good you just turn them on and then suddenly all these teslas on roads are are robo taxis that's sort of the whole basis of is it an ai company is it more than a car company you know i'm you know i i definitely a thing right because people will pay thousands of dollars or a monthly subscription to access these 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 products from tesla already it's margin accretive right if you buy a full self-driving subscription or if you pay for the full self-driving driver assistance feature tesla calls it full self-driving uh for their highest level uh, driver assistance software you know that that's uh that's more uh that's more the software profit margins are better than the car profit margins so it's definitely more in a car company um they also have an energy business it's definitely an impressive automaker but i mean kathy no i mean nobody's as optimistic as kathy yeah and, and they're still a car company i mean regardless of all the other cool stuff they do yes so like is apple a phone company right so the the bull argument on tesla one of the bull arguments is tesla is apple tesla is apple around 07 right so is te- is apple a phone company so they still sell the handsets but you know i have you know very happily you know pay my apple tax right i i get the cloud storage and i have apple plus tv and i have apple news and i don't even know what else i have uh and they have all of these services tied into the ecosystem uh does tesla become that is the is the mix between the hardware and the software the same for Tesla as it is for Apple? I, I'm 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 not really sure. We could come up with any numbers, but that's sort of the argument, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's take a few more reader questions before we uh, finish up today. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this name right, but Robob um, is is asking about your outlook for the rest of the year for the stock market. I'm um, so I always think when anybody ever gives their Oh, look, you should always ask them who they are, what kind of person they are. I tend to be optimistic. You know, the stock market goes up seven or eight years out of 10. So I bat seven or 800 versus perma bears. Uh, so I think things will be fine. Uh, I think we are at uh, the end of, of the rate height cycle um, or close to it. And I think as rates peak and maybe even come down a little bit, that'll be a boost to housing. Uh, that'll be a boost. Lower rates are just generally a boost to the economy. Um, I do believe in this idea of, of manufacturing coming back to the U.S. Um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, those three giant infrastructure bills that were passed by our federal government over the past couple of years, CHIPS, IIJA, and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Those are all very bullish for things about like infrastructure and non-residential construction. So I tend to tend to think things are okay. I don't see a wildly uh, damaging recession on the horizon. So, you know, I, I do buy that idea that, you know, if, if you are bullish, stay in some of the big tech stock. You know, there's no necessarily, you know, reason I would go into the equal weight S&P 500. But I feel okay about stocks. How do you feel, Ben? I feel, well, unlike you, I'm a pessimist. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I have to, I, you know, keep that in check whenever I'm looking at the market and thinking about stocks. Um, but I, I think I have to agree. I mean, we're just in a year that has, like, everything that we know about years like this says that you you finish higher. Um, you know, we had that great start to the year. Um, we're in the uh, third year of a presidential cycle. That also tends to be good. Um, and so we have a, a good start. Yeah, and, you know, we're gonna have a, it's gonna probably be a continued choppy summer as we get through Labor Day um, and, and into September. But I think we do finish uh, higher at the end of the year. And then we'll have to figure out uh, our forecast for uh, 2024. I can't believe we're in 2024 almost. That's driving me nuts. Um, okay, Al, and, and for you, uh, let's see. 
Uh, I don't know if you have an answer to this one. I'm not sure I do, but uh, what do you think about the impact of upcoming IPOs? I mean, the IPO market has been so dreadful. I mean, one yeah. of the reasons Vinpast did a SPAC merger is there was nothing from the, the you know, the IPO market was basically shut down. Yeah, it's you know it's bad. You, you know it's bad if someone decides to go with a SPAC instead of a traditional IPO. Um, yeah. That, that's I mean, crazy. It, it, it is not as clean a capital raising process for sure. I guess that's one way we could put it. Um, I guess ARM IPO from SoftBank, you know, it's a chip company. It has AI angles, uh, so ARM holdings. Um, it builds chips, right? So you design, like Apple design a chip or whatever, and they also have uh, tools and, and patents that these companies like Apple or whatever use to design their chips. Again, today's coverage will be better than what I just said. Um, and so that IPO will be a big deal. So we'll have to see how that goes, right? But that would be the biggest, that'll be like a, uh, I'll say my intelligent answer is like, watch that because that'll be a bellwether, this arm holding that's uh, going to IPO soon. Yeah, and the, and the other one that uh, I think finally did its filing, it done the uh, confidential filing, but now it, it's out there is Instacart uh, on Friday. Um, oh, right. And that's that's another one. I mean, I think this is a good sign for the markets that you're finally seeing these companies um, come out and, and, and do these, these real IPOs. The other thing that makes me wonder, I mean, if, if you want to, you know, talk about being pessimistic is that uh, are these people, are these companies seeing a window here where they feel like, okay, I can get uh, the, um, uh, you know, I can get these out now and I'm going to because I think the window is going to close. Um, for right now, we'll take it as an optimistic sign that people want to buy these things. But the other one to pay attention to was the company called Better. And I have no idea what they do. I think they're an online mortgage lender. Um, but they debuted and they dropped a ton after that IPO, and you have to worry when things like that happen. Um, all right. Well, I think that is all the time we have today. I know there were a lot of things we didn't get to, so we'll have to the next time you're you're on the call, Al. Um, but thank you for being here, and I want to thank everyone for joining us. And sorry about the technical issues at the beginning of the call. I hope that uh, it worked better the rest of the way through. Join us uh, on Barron's Live tomorrow when Barron's associate editor, Reshma Kapadia, speaks with Newberger Berman senior research analyst, Evelyn Chow, about the U.S. pivot towards more aggressive industrial policy to tackle the twin threats of a rising China and climate change and the opportunities that are created by the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Thanks for listening. Stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.